Shabbat Shalom. We had dismissed any of the children who haven't gone to their Shabbat schools. I want to welcome any guests that we have. We usually have a regular official time, and for whatever reason, we haven't been doing it the last couple weeks that we met again. But I have extended family here, the Higginbothams, the Jordans, uh, the Hendersons. Uh, so I don't know about other guests, but I have a lot of extended family here. But the rest of the guests, if you're here for first time or haven't been here in a long time, uh, welcome. Uh, we're glad to worship with you. The Lord is with us this morning. And it's good because we need him. We're living in very unique times. And I was talking to the Lord the other day. Well, every day, I guess you could say. But, and I said, what's going on? You ever ask the Lord, what's going on? And he said to me, or felt like he said to me, Rome is burning. Rome is burning. And I was like, what does that mean? I'll just read you what I feel like he said. He said, the world is in turmoil, and I'm overturning the money changer tables. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. I want everyone to worship me in spirit and in truth. Kind of a heavy discussion. This is what actually led to my teaching on zeal a few weeks ago, for those who heard it. I titled it, Are You a Righteous Zealot, an Ignorant Zealot, or a Passive Sheep? A bit provocative. But it came out of this conversation with the Lord, and I just want to repeat my definition I was arguing for as a basis for today's teaching on what is a righteous zealot. And here's what I said. I said that a righteous zealot has zealous love for God and neighbor, guided by law, number one, with a heart of worship, or true worship, that establishes shalom. I feel like this is a biblical definition of what it means to be a righteous zealot. You can go back and listen to the teaching for justification on that. But really, Yeshua is this ultimate righteous zealot. I mean, the cross is nothing if it's not this display of what it means to have righteous love. And in fact, his return, you could say, is possibly even a greater, or at least an additional demonstration of what righteous zeal looks like. And so, as I've been meditating on this in the last few weeks, I began to realize that, you know, the term zealot isn't really a term that we use. We don't walk around talking about, that guy's a real zealot. I mean, they did 2,000 years ago. That was a real deal, right? But it's not really a word that we use. And the word that we have, we actually have one, and it's similar to a zealot, actually, because, remember, there's ignorant zealots. There are righteous zealots, as I pointed out. But today, the word I want to use that's on par is the word radical. Right? There's the radical right. There's the radical left. Yeshua, though, 
if you think about this, is a radical. He was a radical. He is a radical. He'll always be a radical if we understand. I mean, a righteous radical. Righteous zealot. Yeah, I can tell. That word's a little less comfortable, isn't it? It's not in the Bible. Or is it? I mean, to be a radical means to be an extremist. And the cross, if you think about it, fundamentally changed not only the Roman province of Judea, but it changed every society for all of history. It informed every human who ever lived. That's, I'd say, the definition of radical and extreme, is it not? And that came through the person of, the being of, Yeshua himself, right? And so this radical zeal is this demonstration, including the return of the Lord, is a radical demonstration of love. So it's radical love. And it may be just because I'm a child of the 90s, and so rad was a word of my youth, <laughs> says the Gen Xers, the lost generation, if you will, or the forgotten generation. We do exist. We're fewer in number than the boomers and millennials, but we do exist. Can I, I didn't get any amens. It's because there's none of us out there. I was like, <laughs> okay, all right. I was wrestling with the Lord about this concept of being a radical because it sits a little different than being a zealot. Zealot sounds very biblical. Everybody wants to be biblical. I'm biblical. Are you? <laughs> but the Lord connected me with this previous conversation I had with him. Does the Lord ever do that to you? Remind you of this other time he told you something? And he said, I was asking him, Lord, how, you know, my heart, if you know me at all, is I want to unify the family of Messiah. Because I'm convinced that that's necessary to get him to come back. And so that's what I think about. That's, that's everything I'm doing. I'm, Lord, how can we do this? And I had this aha moment, and I was like, man, I'm really extreme. How am I going to help? And I'm looking at my community. I'm like, they're kind of extreme too. <laughs> right? I'm looking at my wife, my children. It's like, we're pretty extreme. How are we going to unify the family when we're really extreme? And you know what I feel like the Lord said to me? We're all going to be extreme. We're all going to be extreme. And it was really kind of interesting, because he said, did you notice that? We are all going to be extreme. Adonai Tsevaoti Manu. He's with us in this extremeness. We're all going to be radicals, is what he was saying to me. And I realized that we're getting uncomfortable with this. But this is what it's going to take. So practically speaking, I'm like, okay, Lord, what does this look like? Great teaching on radical zeal, righteous zeal. What does that mean? What does it look like? What is radical love? So I began to just, you know, talk with the Lord. And last week, if you remember, I opened the service uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's just start there, and we'll look at what it means to have jealous love for God and neighbor guided by law. What does this radical love look like? Today is going to be one of my most practical teachings. I don't really usually teach in practicalities. 
True. Hashtag true. All right. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting our own meetings, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more so as you see the day approaching. So let's just pause there. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So let's do it. Can we do this together? Let's consider. The question for consideration is, how do we stir up one another to love and good deeds? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? How do we do that? Have you thought about that? How can I do that in my life? Well, first of all, there's an assumption that you would like to do this. So first, make sure and check your heart that you want to grow in love and good deeds, right? That's kind of a given in the text. But I like this word here, how do we stir one another up? Because that's what I like to do. And some of the translations actually use the word provoke. Can you believe it? Motivate, provoke, uh, stimulate, but I prefer provoke. How, how do we provoke one another to love and good deeds? That's a good provocation, is it not? So how do we provoke? This is the question I want us to have. And if you're taking notes, you should write this down. This is just a good question to have in general. How do I provoke others to love and good deeds. You can't go wrong with that. Now, the current context and climate that we're in, like I was saying before, it's a time of crisis, is it not? I'm not trying to be alarmist, okay? Not trying to be conspiracy theory, but we have to, like, acknowledge reality, okay? At least for us younger folks, this is the greatest crisis that we've lived through, okay? That's Gen Xers and below, maybe. It's definitely a social crisis, it's definitely, we're having crises within uh, the ecclesia, within congregations. And maybe you don't know, but it's causing division within congregations right now. All over, definitely America and the world. There's an economic crisis. We're hanging by a thread right now. We don't just get to print trillions of dollars if we're going to have another stimulus. Where is it going to come from? We're definitely in a political crisis. I don't have to argue that one. I would say this, that I'm convinced right now we're actually experiencing an attempted coup d'etat of our nation. You know what a coup is? It's a violent overtake of the country. We don't usually think about this because it doesn't happen in democracies. It happens like one totalitarian dictatorship to another one. And I think it's more than one front because this is really, we're dealing here with principalities and powers. We forget that. We know that passage, but we don't really like, think about it. We're dealing with principalities and powers. It's manifesting through flesh and blood, but in some sense, they don't really care what it looks like. So it's not one particular person or, or movement. It's a multiple attempted coup of our nation. So we could say it this way, America is burning. Literally. America is burning. Well, just, let's talk about it, right? The context of the saying Rome is burning, if you don't know, was that Roman Emperor Nero, in 64 AD, two-thirds of Rome was literally burning, burning to the ground. And the story goes that he sat up on a rooftop playing the fiddle. He was the original fiddler on the roof. 
That's, that isn't, no. That's not. Yeah, Nero and Jew doesn't go together, yeah. Okay, that was bad. Um, it's, it really doesn't make sense, because I, when I looked this up, too, uh, the fiddles weren't even invented yet. So it really doesn't work. It, it was a lie. But I lied to you. <laughs> but the basic meaning of Rome is burning is this, and you know this, okay? It's, it's like a phrase, right? It's a saying. Here's what it means. That during a serious crisis... People are occupying themselves with unimportant matters while neglecting to pay attention to what's really important. This is the passive sheep that I spoke of, putting our heads in the sand as if everything's just going to go back to the way it was. The golden age, or even back to, back to the founders. We're never going back to the founding of our country. I'm not, I respect and honor and love where we were in some sense, but we're never going back there. And there's good reasons we don't want to go back, and there's bad reasons that maybe, well, it's complicated, right? Righteous zealots or righteous radicals love God and neighbor. In a time of crisis, the righteous are able to stand. Remember Rich's teaching a few weeks ago? He said, uh, no retreat, no surrender, right? And he was fired up, was he not? He was like, stand firm. Stand firm. It's in Ephesians 6 actually talking about principalities and power. Stand firm. No surrender. This is what the righteous do in the midst of a crisis. When my sons died, I had a crisis, right? A crisis, and I remember my fifth grade teacher, I've told you guys this before, he wrote something to me on the Funeral Homes website, something very simple, but the profound truths, simple truths are oftentimes the most significant things to stand on in the time of crisis. And he said, Tom, just remember, God is always good, and Satan is always evil. We can't forget our mission in the midst of the crisis is to love God and love neighbor. We stand on his goodness in the midst of this. We stand on his faithfulness in the midst of the crisis as Rome is burning, but we remember our mission in the midst of the fog, in the midst of the COVID-19 and the uh, anarchist Marxist riots remember what? To love God and love neighbor and not just stay on your computer all day and reading about the insanity that's happening in our country and the world. Our calling is to love God and love neighbor. So especially when you're public, get off your phone and talk to your neighbor. I don't care if they have a mask on and it's harder to connect. This week's portion is about the 10 words. You know how you summarize the 10 words? And the Shema, love God, love neighbor. This is the essence. Yeshua says these are the greatest commandments. We can't lose the weightier matters of the law. The greatest and weightiest matters of the law are love God and love neighbor. 
according to our Messiah. So back to Hebrews 10 for our response, because the writer of Hebrews addresses this question of how do we provoke one another to love and good deeds? Verse 25, he says, not neglecting. There's no and in the Greek there. So really, it's, it's one sentence, 24 to 25. Do not neglect our own meetings, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. Apparently, gathering together is essential according to this governing document. This is, this is a governing document. Did you know that? I know we talk about other governances. This is a governing document for our life, is it not? It says, don't neglect the gatherings unto loving, loving God and good deeds. I mean, who thought gathering would be radical? Right? Not in America, but this is, we're dealing with radical times. So radical times call for what sometimes? A radical response. This makes sense. You guys, I've taught this, and we use this language here. Grow our, our calling, our mission is to grow and gather the family of Messiah. Grow and gather, grow and gather. What is trying to be prevented right now? The gather. Did you, did you connect these dots? Don't gather, don't gather, don't gather. This is interesting, isn't it? This isn't a person, though. This isn't the governor. This isn't Laura Kelly. This is principalities and powers. This isn't President Trump. This isn't Dr. Fauci. Fauci? Whatever. However you say it. Right? Let's look further at gathering. Turn to he or excuse me, 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. It's a similar context to Hebrews. Hebrews says, all the more so as the day approaches. Well, what day is that, of course? The return of the Lord. So what do we pick up? We pick up 1 Peter 4. Well, I'll say this first. Clearly in the, the Hebrews passage, the writer is saying that gathering is even more important when things become difficult. As the day approaches, things don't get easier. They become more difficult, right? And I'll just, I'm not teaching on this, but if you're taking notes, you can write this down. That fear leads to deception. Fear leads to deception. Side note. Excursus. First Peter 4. Now the end of all things... Sorry, verse 7. First Peter 4, 7. Now the end of all things is near. Same context as Hebrews passage, right? The day is approaching. The end of all things is near. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another constant... For love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter is likewise trying to what? Provoke us to love. He says, above all. And then he says, make your love constant. 
And then what's the application of this love? Or, or how is this love expressed as a deed? Not just an emotion, but a deed. It continues in verse 9. Be hospitable one to another without grumbling. This is one of my favorite sections of script, all Scripture. I like to summarize it this way. Now the end of the world is at hand. Therefore, show hospitality. The end of the world is here. Therefore, show hospitality. Be hospitable. I love that. It's, that's not, it's a little counterintuitive, is it not? Things are really bad. It's like protect, protect, right? Oh, gather in my family and, and just me and the, and the Lord says, open up your home. The end of the world's near. It's like, what? Are, are we reading this correctly? Well it's, a, well, it's a good question. What does hospitality really mean? Well, let's look at the Greek. Real simple. Well, I'll tell you this. The title of my teaching is Radical Hospitality. All right? That was my introduction. I have long introductions. It's Shabbat. Where are you going to go? You know, really. Uh, so what's hospitality? In Greek, it's the word philoxenos. Philoxenos. This is amazing. The very simple literal definition is lover of strangers or lover of guests. That's what hospitality is in the Greek. Lover of strangers or lover of guests. In light of our current historical crisis or, or national crisis, world crisis, Peter says, show hospitality. I want to be a righteous zealot. How do I demonstrate this, this zealous, jealous love? Show hospitality. Radical hospitality. Peter is saying, keep your love for strangers and guests constant. Keep your love for strangers and guests above all. Wow. And then it's really kind of funny because we all know this passage, love covers a multitude of sins, right? We use that one all the time. Like, come on, brother, you know. Um, it was just me, I guess. Uh, but Love covers the multitude of sins. It's almost like Peter's saying, they're going to come in your home, and they're going to sin in your home. But don't worry. Love covers a multitude of sin. That's just the, at least the immediate context there. I've been reading a book lately, and it's called By Rosario Butterfield. And I just happened to come along this. Leah had heard of this book and this author. I'd never heard of her. And it just happened to come across to me, and I ordered it, and Leah knew all about it, and I didn't even know it. And the title of the book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's the story of how she came to faith through hospitality and how she today continues 
and lives her faith through hospitality. And here's the subtitle, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. I love that. Practicing ordinary, no, radically ordinary hospitality in a post-Christian world. And here's the, the brief story, okay? She was a, this is in the late 90s. She's a PhD professor at Syracuse University in English and women's studies, and she was a radical LGBTQ activist, a feminist, and lesbian. And she helped actually change the English curriculum at Syracuse University to impart all of this agenda into the university. She's very proud of that. She was a, quote, postmodern reader response critic, if you know what that means. I actually don't. And she was writing this book, interestingly, on the religious right, their policies, their practices, their narratives of hatred. That was what her book topic was. Hatred of people like her. And so she started uh, researching and she decided because she was a genuine scholar that she really needed to genuinely hear about people who believed in this ancient book of hatred called the Bible. And she wanted somebody who uh, actually knew Hebrew and Greek. Um, and she had written this op-ed piece, uh, and it was about Promise Keepers, if you know that organization. And she had written a piece on how they're uh, misogynistic and they're, you know, chauvinistic, and I can't remember what else it was. I thought, oh, a threat to democracy. And she said she always would read her uh, response letters and hate mail, and she, she decided that the nicest letter she received from somebody uh, of the opposition was from this particular pastor, Ken Smith. And so she decided, well, he was the nicest person to respond on the other side, and so she uh, somehow contacted him, and he and his wife invited her to dinner at his home. And what happened was, is he ended up inviting her to his to dinner at his home for two years. Meaning, she started coming for two years. And they had this open invitation to Sunday night dinner at his home because this was a thing in his household. And what began as this very, you can imagine, provocative and uncomfortable Sunday night dinner over time, and they would sing from the Psalter, which who says Psalter, but they sang from the Psalter, which I guess is the book of Psalms, and she loved it, and she would tell her lesbian partner about it, and it's like it's a remarkable story, but it took two years of her coming to dinner and before she ever stepped foot in a church. And what happened was she, obviously, since the book is something that we, I read, um, she comes to faith, right? And now she has this radical hospitality. And I'm not saying that we all have to embrace her type of radical hospitality. It is radical. Their home is an open-door policy of radical hospitality. But one of the things she said that was interesting was that there's this counterfeit hospitality out there. 
And guess what language she used? The same thing that we've been talking about and Rich has been talking about, that people need and want belonging. And they're looking for it. And they'll find it, in her context, was the LGBT world. And she's like, she was in that, and she never found that belonging. She wanted it, and she never truly found it in her testimony. But my question is, are we creating a belonging hospitality, an alternative, alternative option of hospitality? Turn back to Peter. After exhorting us to show hospitality, Peter continues, verse 10. As each one of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the many-sided grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let it be with the strength that God supplies. So let me make it plain. Come on. Everyone who has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what Peter says. I'll say it again. How many of you have received a gift? Okay, Peter is saying, everyone, this is what he says, literally. This isn't my translation. Everyone who has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That means everyone has the gift of serving. Not just Johannes. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's good. Everyone has the gift of service. Has the Lord given you a home? If you're not homeless, then you have the gift of a home. You don't have to own your home. You can rent your home. You have authority over your home. Use your authority. Use your authority. You can take dominion over that home. Remember, we're talking about principalities and powers. Well, they don't, they're not in your home. They don't have influence over your home. When they come in that threshold or on that property, that's your home. Claim that home for the kingdom. Your home may not be your favorite gift that God gave you. <laughs> I was laughing because maybe that's true for a lot of you. But the scripture is exhorting us to gather. Yes, we're gathering here, and this is awesome, and we're fighting for that, aren't we? And it hasn't been easy. But we also have our homes. And I don't just mean as a substitute for Shabbat service, right? Gather in our homes. Grow our love and good deeds in the midst of this fog. This is how we plunder the enemy's camp. Pastor Ken Smith was plundering the enemy's camp by inviting people into his home. You may say, well, I'm not called to, door, to street evangelism. Most people say that. You are called to hospitality, to love the stranger, which is a form of evangelism, because we're all called to evangelism. We're all called to evangelism. It's, evangelism means proclaiming the good news. Everyone is to proclaim the good news if you're a disciple of the living God. Your life is to proclaim the good news. 
You're born again to proclaim the good news. It doesn't matter if they already know the Lord. You know you're supposed to evangelize your friends that know the Lord? Because no matter where they are, we're supposed to be growing into his image and likeness. So your life should be sharpening others. It should be calling them to a higher standard. I don't care where you are. It doesn't matter if it's Rich or me or whoever. Everybody has to be growing in Messiah. So we should always be evangelizing. Let me conclude with some practical application. Acts 2, verse 46. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the Messiah, and this is our origin story. This is our identity as the family of Messiah. This is where it all begins. It says, Day by day they continued in one mind, spending time at the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were sharing meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord was adding to their numbers those being saved. So breaking bread from house to house with gladness, not grumbling, is just a part of the foundation and the origin of the family of Messiah. And guess what? Let's say you don't like your home, or maybe it's a dorm room. Where's Gloria? All right? <laughs> your dorm room is nicer or has more amenities than kings and queens a couple hundred years ago. Temperature-controlled environment. <laughs> You're able to study longer, be comfortable, right? To be, I mean, we, we can get, we're more productive because of that, aren't we? So imagine the first century. These weren't all nice homes when they're breaking bread from house to house. And they're still doing it, aren't they? Have you seen any of the archaeological ruins? They're not nice homes, okay? Come on my next tour. I'll show you. <laughs> I realize there are barriers to entry, so I just want to bring them up. There's another barrier to entry. I'm not a good cook. Not everybody has Leah Blake that lives in their house. I realize that. And I realize you may not want to come to dinner at my house if I was cooking, but... You should have grace. Why? Because the food is way better than it was in the first century also. <laughs> right? Maybe. True. Truth. All right. You can go to the store and get food from all over the world still at this point. So we have to realize and have, this is just part of it. Get over it, right? This isn't always a first-class meal. Another one, I can't afford it. Because I could hear the enemy already talking to you when I was preparing this, okay? <laughs> We're the wealthiest nation in human history. I'll say that again. We're the wealthiest nation in human history. Fact, right? Consider adding this in your budget. Did you know that in Scripture there was an offering, or really a tithe, they call it, and it's a celebratory Tithe with food and drink. That's beyond the 10%. It's another teaching. Over 20% if you add them all up. So above your tithes, 
This could be an offering. It could be a new category in your budget. Here's another one. My, my neighbors make me nervous. Right? We're the safest country in the world. Did you know that? We might be the safest country in human history. I mean, you see, like we're, it's like the enemy will do anything, but contextually, I'm putting this into the story of human history. We're the wealthiest, we're the safest, we have the best food, we have the most comfortable environment. We really don't have any legitimate historical excuses. Here's another one. I'm an introvert. Anybody already thought about that one? I'm an introvert. What will we talk about? I've got a key. Invite more than one couple. If you have two couples, or just inviting one single person, invite a couple single people. If you have people from just more than that one, it makes the conversation a little smoother. All right, here's the last one. There's many more about this last one. Pride. Righteous zealots declare war on pride. Righteous zealots declare war on pride. You know what the opposite of pride is? It's right here. The cross. Crawl up on the altar. I'm not saying it's not a genuine barrier, but I'm saying we have to die to ourselves. All right, I'll end on this. Suggestions to kickstart your hospitality. Start by hosting Friday night Shabbat dinner. Did you notice during the women's blessing that Brian began to get emotional? Did you notice that? Did you, did you hear what he was praying? He didn't know what I was teaching on today. He was thanking the Lord for the meal offerings and the different sacrifices and offerings as to the women for having people in their homes. He who has an ear, let him hear. The Lord is honored by this. He loves, he wants to bless us and the women. He's so proud of you for doing this. this I don't want you to hear this as condemnation. He, it makes him so excited that we would Use the gift of our homes for others. It, it honors him so much. And I just feel like he was affirming that through Brian's sensitivity to the Lord. So start by hosting Friday night Shabbat dinner or Saturday night dinner. If you can't get home from work, it's like, I get it. Try Saturday night. I mean, it doesn't really, what, I'm not really specific on the night, do what works, but Friday night's already built into if you're a member of this congregation. A radical zealot, remember, has a heart of worship. And in Scripture, the number one form of worship is through eating. It's called the sacrificial system. So our homes become this altar before the Lord. Food stimulates worship if we will think of it in those terms. And that's why if it's not perfect food, you don't really care. Did you know I'm a coffee snob? Many of you know that about me. And I, I carry on this little cup and everybody makes fun of me. <laughs> it's true. Everybody makes fun of me. Raise your hand if you've made fun of me about the little cup. Yeah, look, at our, look around the room. Like, that's hilarious. Are you serious? Look at this. Like, it's the majority of the people in the room make fun of me. 
No respect. But did, but did you know that as much as I love coffee and care about good coffee, that I could care less how good the coffee is in some sense? Genuine in my heart. We would drink Nescafe and, and instant coffee in Israel, and it was just fine. Just, it, it, as much as I love it, it doesn't really matter. What mattered was the people, right? But if you do have instant coffee and you're inviting me over, no, it's just okay. <laughs> Number two, start by hosting somebody you know. Okay, I'm not saying find the meanest person in your neighborhood. It's so invite somebody in the congregation. Like start somewhere, okay? Because then it seems like you'll never start. Start with somebody you even like. Uh, just start. The point is just start. And then for those of you who are like, Tom, this is old hat. I haven't been listening for the last 10 minutes. Don't raise your hand. Take the hospitality challenge. The hospitality challenge. You know how they did that? Like, what was it called? The pour water on each other challenge? Ice bucket challenge. Thank you. Start inviting strangers to dinner. Start inviting strangers to, in your neighborhood. I mean, they could be like strangers that you live next to. But let's start plundering the enemy's camp. I mean, people are very vulnerable right now. And depression is out of the roof right now. Because they haven't had social contact. And there's so much fear, which is increasing the deception. So let's do something about it. Remember, my goal for our congregation is not to survive all this. It's to thrive and plunder the enemy's camp. So, number two for the hospitality challenge, start hosting more nights per month. Ask the Lord how often he wants you to host. But, you know, start with something like, should it be more than once a month? You know, I mean... All right, let's pray. You'll be surprised how many more invitations you get when you initiate for the future. And be a good guest. Offer to bring food, right? Offer to bring drinks. Be conscious of if, if they don't drink or they do. Like, that's loving your neighbor, right? Lord, as we just prepare our hearts for the greatest hospitality, taking the Lord's table, I just pray that we would grow our resiliency, that this hospitality will, hospitality will grow our resiliency, Lord. that you would give us, a, above all, a constant love for our neighbors, a love of the world, a love of our family, to grow and gather our family, Lord. Make us one. 
May we dwell together, literally dwell together, be together in unity. Hashem Yeshua. Amen.